Well, good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Vestas Park. We're disciples of Jesus that builds disciples of Jesus. My name is Aaron, lead pastor, and I am thrilled that you are here with us today. So we are in chapter 20 in our, in our walk through the, uh, the book of Acts, which of course is the second half to the gospel of Luke, uh, begins with the resurrection really of Jesus and really it talks about how the church really grew and overcame uh, from all kinds of obstacles becoming, you know, the, the kingdom of God on this earth and things like that. And just an incredible book. And we are now in chapter 20. And uh, I like chapter 20. I think it's one of the most profound sections of Scripture, uh, especially preparing for this message today. Uh, we really begin talking about some of those end things. Uh, one of the things that I do every year, usually I try to do it near the beginning of the year, is I'll... Um, I'll read a book, uh, it's about time management, and it has some different principles of how to really make sure that we make the most of our time, and to, to use this, one of the, 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 the principles in there, it says uh, to begin with the end in mind. I think that's important. Like, if you're going to make a chocolate cake, usually you pull out a recipe for chocolate cake, because if you pull out a recipe for barbecue ribs, things are going to go south in a hurry, right? And we begin with the end in mind. It's important for us, right? So that way, every step makes sense. And I think we understand that conceptually, but how many of us live our lives in such a way that every day we're, we're trying to make chocolate cake, but we're pulling out barbecue sauce and all kinds of other kind of crazy things, and we get to the end and wonder why it didn't make, it's just not the way that we hoped it would be. And so we only have so much time, right? Every one of us, we, we're on the clock, right? Uh, and uh, I find that uh, my time in ministry... I've had the privilege of being with a number of people on their deathbeds. And there's something uh, very clarifying about knowing that these are going to be your last few days, months, or hours. And spending time with those who are, are coming face-to-face with their uh, mortality, I've found, has been very helpful for me. Because those that know that their time is running out are very, very conscious of the time that they do have left, the words that they have left, the opportunities that they have left. They don't squander them. Very rarely do you see uh, soap operas playing on the television set of those that are in hospice. The thing is that one of the things I find so clarifying about that is that I'm also on the clock. So are you. And today's passage, we get to chapter 20, we see the Apostle Paul at the end of his third missionary journey, knowing that this is his, the end of this portion of his life, his missionary journeys, things like this, he knows it's a transitional time for him. And he, he knows he's not going to be able to come back. He's ending this, this season. And we see that having that uh, knowing that, that his time, his resources are finite, that he only has so much left, it's important to see how he budgets those things, how he... Well, the words that he says, what is most important, usually comes out at the end. And, and really in preparing for this passage or this, this sermon, as I was reading that message, I was really, um, had some introspective time. I'd be thinking if I was in the apostles' shoes, what would be different? What would be if I knew this was my last sermon that I got to preach to you? Would it be any different? Right? If this was my last week that I had the opportunity to serve as your pastor, or to serve my family, or to serve in this community, what, because the reality is, I think we all know this, that the only at the end, beginning with the end in mind, that I should always be living towards that. 
And I'll tell you, it did change my message, by the way. And it did change how I lived this last week. What I found in this passage and growing through, I think some of the most powerful principles that we find and help us make sure that we don't just waste our time as individuals. We don't waste the time, the gift that God has given us, this, this brief moment that we have to spend here. Oddly enough, we find those same principles are the exact same things that also have helped the church overcome it through the millennia and all of the different kinds of, of, of cultures and governments and all the things throughout history, all the things that have come against it, these same truths, these same principles are the same things that have helped the church overcome all of those to grow and to thrive even in the midst of adversity. And so uh, I'm excited for this passage. Hopefully by the time you leave today, like I did after I exited by time and I study of the Word with a sense of purpose, a sense of empowerment, a sense of joy and of hope of what I'm supposed to be doing. So that way at the end of my life, I've got chocolate cake. And that's what we get to do today. Now before we do, we have our memory verse, which happens, by the way, to come from today's chapter. And our memory verse for this entire series is, of course, Acts 20, 24. For those of you who are new with us, every week uh, we, we memorize a, a passage, really for the whole series, that kind of summarizes kind of the heart of those things. And, and so what we do is we begin to set that to our heart and uh, together as a congregation, and then we begin to practice that throughout the week. And our memory verse for this series is Acts 20, 24, our passage today. And it says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Isn't that powerful? Awesome. We'll talk today about how that verse has been changing my life and how it can begin to really transform your life and your world as well today. But first, let's get into the Word. It's Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bible, you'd like to turn there. Uh, If you have one of our Bibles, use one of ours. It's going to be on page 774. If you need a Bible, well, we've got plenty of them by there, the sound booth there. And if you just don't have a Bible, you need a new one, just keep it. Be our gift to you this morning. Now, as you're turning there to Acts chapter 20, let me just remind you what happened in Acts chapter 19, because it's a continual narrative, right? Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. In fact, he's been in Ephesus for three years, which is his longest ministry, right? That's a record for Paul, three years in one place. And at, during that ministry, he had a miraculous ministry. It's the time, only time in Paul's ministry we find that we find all kinds of miracles happening, right? People were being healed by his handkerchiefs, and all kinds of cool stuff were happening there. And God was using him very powerfully there in such a way that, that the gospel begins to spread throughout the entire region of what we, it's modern-day Turkey, but they called Asia. And so we find all of these huge churches begin to grow, and be, uh, the entire area becomes a, a major hub of Christendom. Isn't it amazing? And so it takes three years for all that to happen, a very powerful, effective ministry. And at the end of it, there's a riot because he, Paul was too effective, was so effective that the city that he was in was a place where there was goddess worship and they had this big seven wonder of the world, this, this temple that was there. And uh, so many people were becoming Christians, they were walking away from the, the idol worship and the idol makers got mad and they were like, we don't have enough money because all of our customers are turning to Christians. And so they threw a riot and they threw a riot like the Ephesians did, not like Americans. They didn't riot stores or things like that. They orderly went into a coliseum and they shouted for hours, great is it you know, are the Ephesians, which I think is hilarious. And then after their riot... Uh, you know, the, the city official comes up and scolds them, and then they're like, oh, we feel bad, and they leave. And that's when this chapter 
picks up. Okay, that's how we, we, we start there. And so in chapter 20, verse 1, we read, when the uproar had ended, that's the big chapter thing, Paul uh, sent for his disciples and encouraged them, and saying goodbye, he set out for Macedonia. So you see the circle on the screen there? That's Ephesus. That's where they're at. And there was this big riot. And of course, the gospel had already spread for all those things. And Paul said, all right, it's time to go. And where does he go? Well, he goes to Macedonia, which is like a big region. You see that there? That's what we would call Greece today. And so he's like, we're going to head up there. So that's what he does. And he leaves and he goes all the way through Macedonia, visiting all of the churches that he had planted previously. And why does he go? Well, Paul is a very important mission that he's on. And we don't find it here. We find it in some of the other writings that Paul has given us. He, he really took that route because he was taking an offering for the Christians that are in Jerusalem, which is a pretty phenomenal because if you look in this area, this is mostly Gentile area. And he's going, he's bringing an offering back to the, the Christians that are over there in Jerusalem. So he stops at all of these churches, and he's not just him, but... Uh, in verse uh, 4, we find there's a group of guys that are going along with him. Those are basically emissaries from the different churches throughout the entire region, basically showing unity in the body of Christ, saying, we stand in solidarity with Jerusalem, that it's, this, it's the same Lord, same Savior, pretty awesome thing, and they're sending their money to Christians that they had never met. It's pretty phenomenal. So he goes through all of these, these places, and he's taking this offering. And why would he send that to Jerusalem? Well, they're financially going through a real, a real hard time. The Christians over in Jerusalem were facing harsh persecution. Right? They, were, they were really having a difficult time making it. And so what they couldn't do, the churches throughout the rest of the world came together and Paul brought up this offering and they didn't just send money, they sent their very best, the different men from all these other churches saying, we are standing together with this and they're going to bring which is an important day for the church. Right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So Paul makes it all the way down, he gets it to Corinth, and the plan was he's going to go all the way back to Syria, right? That's what you read there, verse 5, that was the plan. The problem was they discovered that there was a plot to kill Paul. And so Paul's like, well, if they're going to kill me on a boat on the way back, and they're going to steal this money or whatever, maybe I'm going to go a different route. So it says there that he decides to go back up through Macedonia, and he winds up there in Philippi. Right? And why is he in Philippi? Well, uh, we find that he goes on to Philippi uh, for a very important thing. He is going to celebrate. So in verse 5, it says, uh, those guys that were traveling with him, they went on ahead to Troas. Where's Troas? It's that city right at the top of Asia, that peak, that little city that's right up there. They went on ahead. So they went across the water and they met him in Troas. He and Luke uh, stay up there in Philippi. And in uh, what's verse 5 it says, "We went to Troas, but we sailed from Philippi. Uh, we sailed from Philippi um, after the festival of unleavened bread." So Paul decides to stick out in Philippi for the festival of unleavened bread, and so he takes with him Luke. And how do we know Luke was there? Because of that word "we." Luke is the one who wrote this uh, area, this gospel. Uh, Luke had been part of the missions for a while. That he he stayed at home for a couple years as he was doing some work while Paul was down there uh, working in Ephesus, and now he's back on the team. And uh, so Luke is sticks with the apostle as he celebrates the festival of unleavened bread. So, what's the festival of unleavened bread? Why would Paul decide that he should stop for a week and celebrate this? It's one of the three commanded festivals that we find in Exodus 23, where God. I love God. God says, "I command you to party." 
Three times a year, God says, I command that you stop working and you throw a party. And they all have to do around this different uh, the things that are happening with the agricultural system, things that are going on then. And so the first party that God commands is the festival of unleavened bread, and it's to remind them of the exodus. See, God was reminding them before the harvest came in. He says, listen, I know it's going to be a lot of work coming up because apparently, I've never been a farmer, but apparently in farming, uh, harvest is hard work. Before the harvest comes in, I want to remind you that you're not slaves. I want to remind you that my mercy covers you, just like at, at Passover, right? That, that, uh, that I'm the God who saves you, that you're my people. What a great way to start a work week, right? A work season. And so before any of that, God reminds them of this. And so they have the festival of unleavened bread, which reminds them they had to bake their cakes really fast before the yeast could rise and so they could leave really quickly. When the Passover, really important time of year, right? If, especially for Christians, we remember that's the time you have Good Friday, right? That happened then, that we had the, the, the execution of Jesus. We had the resurrection that happens during that season. And so this is a very holy time. And so Paul decides he's going to go up to Philippi. He's not going to travel on this special day. He's going to celebrate. And they celebrate. God knows how to, how to celebrate. It's not just a day. Like Americans, we do a day because we're busy, right? They're like a week. Like you take a week out, you're going to party. And that's what they did. He celebrated in Philippi, and he brings Luke along with him during that time. And then after that, he then meets his buddies over there in Troas. So Four things about that. The first one in Philippi, we recognize that Paul was there. He was taking the offering. He had already taken the offering, which would be scary because it's not like today where you can just wire money, right? There wasn't Western Union. They had to carry bags of cash on streets, right, where you could be robbed and all of this, which is also one of the reasons why they would have brought these emissaries from the church. They were guarding the gift to the church with their very lives. Think about the commitment of that. They had to take all that money with them all the way down, and they were planning on sailing. Now they got to go back up through. And I imagine that as they were going back up to the rest of Philippi, they stopped at those churches, and they say, Hey, Bereans, you should see how much the Thessalonians gave. Right? Because it's not a little healthy competition. It's, it's good. So he does that. He's still taking that. So he has all of that. But he also... Um, he celebrates this Jewish festival, but who does he bring with him? Luke, who's a Gentile. Consider that, that Paul, Paul didn't have to stop being a Jew to be a Christian, that's important, but he invites Luke out of, out of just, I think, brotherly love, invites him into this great party that Gentiles have never really got to experience before, but he says, hey, celebrate this with me. How cool is that? Third thing I think of there is that this is Easter season. Right? At, at the beginning of this time, right, we, we find that uh, we're not just celebrating the death of Jesus, but also his resurrection. Right? This is a happy time for the faith. And the resurrection comes later on in the story as well. That, that our faith is not something that's based upon, oh, I hope someday that we'll rise from the dead. There's evidence that people will rise, starting with Jesus. And so that was great. And the third thing is that now, if, it's, if this is Passover time, and Paul wants to get back over uh, to Jerusalem to bring the gift uh, by the time of Pentecost, he's got 50 days. He's on the clock. He knows his time is, is there, so he's got to be very careful how he budgets his time. So what does he do next? Well, after they, they get done having that party, they travel back over. He goes back. He follows the steps of the guys that before him, and he ends up there on the Easter store, uh, that town called Troas. Now, Troas was an important town for Paul, a very important city for Paul. It was in Troas that Paul had the vision of the Macedonian man. 
right? So uh, in, the, in the second, his second missionary journey, when he kept trying to go to Asia, and God's like, don't go to Asia. And they're like, okay, go to Bithynia, go north. And God's like, don't go up there, right? And so they, they just keep going around the top of, of Asia, and they're like, I guess we're not supposed to bring the gospel here. And they end up where the land winds up running out, and that's in Troas. And God gives Paul the vision of the Macedonian man to go all the way over the Grecian peninsula. It says, hey, reach the gospel to us. Right? That's happened while he was in Troas. Troas is a place that Paul didn't just have this vision, but obviously the church was planted there. It was growing. Paul had uh, kind of some roots there. We find in 2 Timothy, near the end of Paul's life, right? when he's in prison, he's awaiting the end, and he writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, hey, I want you to come visit me, but before you do, stop up in Troas because there's a couple things I left there. Some of my scrolls, which are important, because if you're in prison, apparently you want to have some books to read. And the second thing is his coat, Right? So he had, he had a little place there, and he had left his stuff, and that was an important place for him. I think it's interesting in Scripture that we don't have a book to Troas, right? that God didn't inspire, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire a, a section of Scripture, a letter to Troas. But Paul certainly cared about this place. They were dear brothers and sisters. How do we know that? Well, then he spends an entire week with them. Remember, he's on the clock, and he's a long way from Jerusalem. But he crosses back over, and he spends an entire week in Troas. Now, what does he do during that time? Well, verse 7, he says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, and Paul spoke to the people. Because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. I think that's hilarious. Okay, for starters, when, when you know you only have so much time left, right, you're going to make that time count, aren't you? And Paul loved these people, and he's going to make every second count, right? And so he does what some pastors do, which sometimes I'm guilty of. Is I, I know the power of God's word, how important it is. And he went a little long, pretty long. Now he starts, I think we see here, that the day of the week that they met together. He's there all week, but when did they get together for this? The first day of the week, a Sunday. You know, Christians have been meeting together on Sunday for a very long time. It's part of what we do. And what did they do when they met together on Sunday? Well, they broke bread. They had hymns, right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, what we're doing today has ancient roots right from the very beginning. They meet on Sunday, Christians didn't meet on Sunday to undo the Sabbath, by the way. The Sabbath was the last day of the day, the day of the week was supposed to rest. Christians got together on the first day of the week to celebrate, to worship, and to serve God. Right? That's a, it's a powerful thing. Why would we meet on the first day of the week? To remind ourselves on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. What a great way to start every week. Think about how we, as Christians, the privilege we have every single week. We get up before we even start working for the week. We get together and we remind ourselves that this world is not all there is. We get up every Sunday. We come together and remind ourselves that death isn't the end. We get together every Sunday, remember that righteousness overcomes wickedness. We get together every Sunday and remind ourselves that this life has meaning and that God loves us and that, that life is unstoppable in Christ. I, what a great way to start the week, right? That, that sins are paid for, right? That the wicked people are cared for, that grace covers people from sins. That's a great way to start the week. And that's how I've been doing it for a very long time. So Paul gets together with the Christians, like they always would do. They get together, they're worshiping God, they're celebrating communion, right? They're studying the word, and Paul goes a little long because he knows his time with them is, this is the last time he'll get to see them. 
And so he preaches and preaches and preaches, and he preaches too long. And then, just as preaching too long is a uh, tradition in the church from a very long time ago, we find also there was another tradition in the church a long time ago. It says, there were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul was talking on and on. I love the honesty of Scripture here. So if you ever fell asleep in church, it's part of a deep tradition. It goes back a long way. But here's a warning to you from the Word. It says, when he, was found, uh, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. <laughs> so uh, Paul preached him to death. But that's not a good way to end, right? That's not the punctuation that you want to have. By the way, this is uh, resurrection season and all this kind of thing. So Paul's with them. He, Eutychus falls out of the window and dies. And so then Paul goes down and throws himself on the young man and he says, get up. And, and the young man gets up and Paul says, don't worry, he's alive. And uh, reminds the folks of the reality of the resurrection. As we don't believe in a fairy tale. Our God is a God of life. That's an amazing thing. So Eutychus gets up, they feed him because... And then they went upstairs again. And after they broke bread, it says, and then Paul continued to preach until daybreak. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> He's like, that all woke you up, didn't it? Okay, no one falls asleep, you'll die. And listen to what I have to say. But then after he was done, he gets on a boat. Well, actually, he walks down south. Uh, he, he, and then they pick him up at a, uh, the, the dock the next uh, day. And then he gets on that boat. And then he goes south even further. And uh, you'll see he ends up in this town that's south of Ephesus. Remember we started in Ephesus? The place he'd been there for three years? A city they had really close ties to, all of that? It says in Scripture that he intentionally doesn't go back to Ephesus, but instead he goes south of it to Miletus. And the reason why he avoided Ephesus was he didn't want to take extra time there. Right? There were certain things in his life. It was good to go to Ephesus. He would have a lot of fun. Imagine the first time he went to Ephesus, maybe he was planning on staying a week or two. And then he stays three years. And he's like, these are people that, you know, he just takes a little extra time. So he's like, I, I can't get stuck. I'm on a mission. And so he decides to go down south of it to Miletus, but he doesn't want to ignore the Ephesians. He loves them. And he knows it's probably the last chance he'll ever get to see them on this side of heaven. And so he calls for the Ephesian elders. And they, the Ephesian elders, they love Paul so much, they travel down and they meet him in Miletus. And then we have Paul's message to them, starting in verse 17. And in fact, Paul does, this is one of the most powerful passages for those that are in leadership. Uh, it's a passage that I read regularly. Um, it's a great check for me. It helps me know to, to serve you in, in the right heart, in the right manner, how I'm serving the church. And so uh, we have here that Paul's message to the elders. I'm just going to read it for you, what Paul had to say. It says, uh, verse 18, it says, When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
My only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I have gone out among preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any one of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all of those who, you, who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver nor gold or clothing. For you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, he said, it is more blessed to give than receive. What an amazing message. And after that, it said that the elders were, were more sad by what Paul had to say that he's not going to get to see them again than anything else, which is pretty significant because he warned them that some that were even in that room from their own number were eventually going to attack the flock. And Paul tells them, listen, it's not about you. He gives them the secret of how to overcome. He says the final words, the apostle to these churches in Asia, into Macedonia, the final words he gives to their elders. How to overcome. How to live a life of purpose. How the church can overcome this world and to grow and to build the kingdom that it's supposed to be. And so from this passage, there are three major principles or lessons that I pick up. I want to share with you today, and then we'll talk about how we can apply them. The first one is that we overcome with sacrifice. This is true as individuals, and it is true of the church, right? That uh, sacrifice is necessary. It's part of the Christian faith. It's essential. That Jesus said, if you, if you uh, want to keep your life, you want to live your life just for you, you want to get everything that's all about you, you want to live a narcissistic life, guess what? You lose your life. You don't even get those things that you're trying to gain. And you'll never find contentment. And he told us something that we needed to hear, something that's counterintuitive, which is why we needed to hear it. He says, if you give up your life for my sake, and it's that last part that matters, for his sake, then you think. How strange yet freeing. He's understand that sacrifice is important. Look what Paul has to say at the end of his life, right? He, he could do anything he wanted. The apostle Paul was just south of a city that he had three years of great ministry. They saw all kinds of miraculous world, works of his. He was inside of an area now that was so evangelized that idol workers were going out of business, right? He was right there in comfort land, and he had lots of money from the church, right? He could have escaped on his own. He could have found a way to, to manipulate things to basically live like a king. With verse 23, what does he say? Actually, 22, he says, I'm now compelled by the Spirit, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem. God's telling him to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I only know that in every city, the Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. But he doesn't consider his life worth anything to him. He's got a name. Right? And because Paul did this, the gospel continues to grow, and eventually it makes it to Rome. 
and beyond. Paul had to start by sacrificing his comfort. Anybody who tells you that your best life is now is lying. What a horrible, horrible thing would it be if today was your best life? You could live your best life for, I don't know, even 60 years on this planet. I live forever, and compared to eternity, 60 years is a blink. Your best life is coming. We don't live for now. It doesn't mean we want to be miserable now, but it says we're not afraid of the pain, because the pain is temporary. But what we're living for, the glory, is eternal. Right? So he says, so, so Paul says, don't be selfish. That's it. He doesn't live a selfish life. Then one of the secrets we have to understand in overcoming in this world is to not be selfish. I have been with enough people at the end of their life to recognize this. I've never had one person brag to me was happy about how narcissistic they were in this world. I've had some who had deep regret. They lived for only their own pleasures. That they didn't serve enough, they didn't care for their family enough, or their community enough, or their church enough. That they, they lived their life just for themselves and they regret it deeply at the end. But I find that also the opposite is true. I've never had a mom say, I wish I would have loved my kids less. Or a dad say, I wish I didn't care and provide and protect and, and to sacrifice myself for my family. I've never been with another pastor who was on his deathbed who has said, you know, I wish I, I didn't care for the flock as much as I did. You know, I, I've, I've never ever had been in a part where I've heard somebody say, I just wish I took some more time for myself. Ever. It rests in all of us, doesn't it? And it kills us. When I start living for me, I'm the king of my own little kingdom, right? There's a very good chance that you're probably not going to want to be part of my kingdom because you're probably king or queen of your own little kingdom, right? And then we get together, and our little kingdoms go to war, and we have fights, because I want things my way, and you want things your way, naturally. And so we fight, and we argue, and do all these kinds of things, and what happens is we end up separated at a war, and we exhausted. What happens? And when I can bend a knee to Christ, be part of his kingdom, and you can do the same thing, for the first time in human history, I have an ally. And not just you, but I'm also aligned with God himself. It's an amazing thing. And what we find is what God is doing, his kingdom is doing, is far better than the kingdom of Aaron could ever do. The kingdom of Aaron would be a fun place, right? There'd be a lot of barbecues, good music, but there would also be a lot of not cleaning the dishes, Right? It'd be messy. It wouldn't have a lot of purpose to it. It'd be fun to go for a weekend, but then you don't want to move there. The kingdom of God transforms people from death to life. The kingdom of God goes to those that are broken and heals them. The kingdom of God goes to the hopeless and doesn't just give them hope but a promise and a, and a future. The kingdom of God is so much more worthy than the kingdom of Aaron. The kingdom I want to be part of, but I can't bring selfishness there i got to die to myself. Jesus said, you pick up your cross daily if you want to follow me. you got to be a living sacrifice. you got to lay down your desires, your wants, your needs. This is what it looks like as far as a Christian. When we say as far as a dad, because I'm a dad, it means that, you know what? There are days I just want to go home and I just want to check out. Or there are times I want to buy the toy for myself for once. I lay down my life for my son. I take care of his mom. I do it not because it's good for me, but because it's good for the kingdom. 
And I find the most amazing thing when I do that, I find that my life is more full. We have to stop living just for me. I saw one of the most beautiful examples of that here this last week. My, my parents, uh, they, they have a timeshare up in Keystone, which I think is crazy because they live in Estes, but they, they, they have a timeshare that they got to go up to and they could only spend a couple days. They said, hey, you want the rest of it? And I was like, yes, please. And so we went up there. And so I got to go there and there's a, a grocery store there, a city market, which is, ah, right? And also I'll tell you that uh, every grocery So I was walking into the store and I noticed that I was walking in, there was this young lady, I don't know, maybe in her late teens or whatever, and uh, she grabbed this, uh, the last remaining dual thing cart, right? It's got the top and the bottom. It's like two baskets stacked on each other so you could be like a sports car, right? And the thing, right? Got the last one, right? And pulls it out and goes and looks to her left. And wouldn't you know it, but there was an older gentleman that was there. He had this uh, uh, hat that said that he served on some kind of boat at some point in history for our country and things like that. And he goes and he picks up a basket, right? And she looks at her cart, she looks at him, and she says, sir, would you like my cart? And, and gave it to him. Now, that seems very small. But this young woman chose to not be selfish. I mean, it's those little things that make life, humanity, great. Little things. You know, inspired by that, it made me, it made it so much easier for me to be kinder to the people that I was there with, right? If we all just live like the end of our nose is the last thing that we see, we all run into each other. We have to begin living selflessly, sacrifice. That's the way of the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul says, I might be tortured going to Jerusalem, but I need to bring this gift to Jerusalem. If it costs me whatever it costs me, it does. I consider my life worth nothing. But I'm testifying to good news. That's what I'm doing. And he points back to then, he says, you know what Jesus said? It's better to give than receive. Do you know it's the only place in the Bible that that's recorded? It's not in the Gospels. But Jesus said it. You see, Jesus was a God who sacrificed. God chose our good above his own, didn't he? And yet now where is he? Exalted at the right hand of the Father. He's doing pretty good. Every day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He's, he's, uh, he's amazing. He, to the glory of God the Father, like everyone's going to say, yep, you're Lord. He's doing fine. But he didn't seek himself. He sought our good. And if God can sacrifice for me, how much more can I sacrifice for him? How much more can I sacrifice for you as well? We overcome with sacrifice. As individuals, when we stop living for ourselves, I guarantee you guys, we'll have better marriages, we'll have better families, we'll be better parents, we'll be better kids, we'll be better citizens if we start living more selflessly. And as the church, if we as Christians can live more selflessly, we are more Christ-like. And as the church begins to sacrifice, like the churches all around Asia began giving generously to these people, these Christians they never even met before, gave of their time, they gave their things to do the dangerous job of carrying this gift all the way back, right? As the church begins to act selflessly, the church starts to make a difference in the world in amazing ways, begins to care for the poor and the hungry and the broken in ways that the world cannot even understand. Right? We give to those who will never be able to give it back to us. The church has got to stop saying, is there, what's the return of investment? And start saying, I'm investing in God's kingdom. I'm saving nothing. It's all loss. My life counts nothing to me. My only aim 
right, is to finish the race, complete the task. As the church becomes more selfless, the kingdom of God grows. It overcomes the brokenness of this world in profound ways. The second truth we find is that we have to overcome in unity. Paul didn't travel alone. Paul didn't have enough pocket change to go down there to Jerusalem to make a difference to the Jerusalem Christians, did he? That's why he went together to all the churches. Paul went to all of the churches through, through Asia, which is Turkey, through Greece, right? Amazing things, traveled all the way through there, bringing the church together, bringing the leaderships of the church together and saying, we're in this together. You're not just an isolated group that's somewhere out there. You're part of something big. When the church in Jerusalem was suffering, the entire church was suffering. Something a great principle for us. And I'll say this, just as much as the church came together, there was a warning that Paul gave about those who would come to divide the church. Look at verse, uh, was it uh, 29? It says, I know after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw disciples after themselves. So be on guard. The enemy is always trying to rip the church apart. Right? It's there. And how does it happen? It's usually people who think they know better than other people. This is bad stuff. And when the church begins to divide, then we have no ability to be able to go and to serve the world. I think oftentimes we fight the wrong battle. There are Christians out there who are absolutely wrong in a lot of important things, but they're absolutely right in the most important thing. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. This is our standard of rule, faith and practice, isn't it? Right here. And they have the right thing, but they disagree with me on some other stuff. And so we go to war with them. How silly is it that Christians fight other Christians when the world is dying? We deplete our resources and we fight one another and we're supposed to be together. I'll tell you, the churches in Asia and the churches over there in Greece had a lot of differences than the churches there in Jerusalem, right? Culturally, politically, all kinds of other things. They didn't always agree eye to eye, but they were together. As Christians, we have to understand that, that the church needs to be unified. That's why we say in essentials, unity, right? We have to have that. What's the essentials? The things that everybody in heaven has that nobody in hell has, right? That would be the essential, right? The thing that's difference. What is that? We're saved. That's the first thing because nobody in hell has been saved because that's the whole point, right? Saved by God's grace. No one earns it. Through our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, right? That's essential. There's nobody in hell that says, I had faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there's no one in heaven that didn't have him as, as a Savior, whether they knew him as Messiah or whether they knew him as a promise of coming or they know him by name. There's no one in heaven other than Jesus being there. He is the only one on that throne. Now, there's a lot of other important things that Christians can be wrong on. I do my best. Man, I study all the time. I pray. I study. I take classes. I do all the theological stuff. I read the ancient works of the old Christians that came and some of the newer stuff. That, you know, try to find, make sure that my doctrine is right. Because I don't want to get to heaven and God say, doofus, right? But guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get to heaven and there's going to be some things I didn't get right, despite my best efforts. Really. And I know that's going to happen, which gives me some humility. I'm going to do my best work and I'm going to preach to you the best I know how, right? But God is complex. Now, the gospel is simple. Child can get that. Saved by God's grace through faith, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. This is our standard rule of faith and practice, right? I got that. It's easy. There's a lot of the application portions that are difficult. 
And when I get to heaven, I, I know that there are going to be places that I'm going to be talking with the Holy Spirit. And he's like, uh, yeah, you got that wrong. I'm grateful that God's grace covers me, that I'm not saved by the perfection of my, my intellect. I'm saved by God's grace. If God's willing to give me that kind of grace, how much more should I offer that to another Christian? Somebody sincere can be sincerely wrong. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them. But if they're a brother and sister in Christ, they're a brother and sister in Christ, who am I to reject those whom God has accepted? That are pastors of other churches in this community that I have profound differences doctrinally than they do on some very important things, but they're my brothers in Christ. And we meet together, and because we're brothers in Christ, because we love one another, we can discuss these differences. And we have great discussions about things that I know are true and they just don't see yet. Right? But they've challenged me as well. That's where we begin with love. So in unity, right? In essentials, unity. And not essentials, liberty, but in all of those things, love. The church needs to stick together. But also in the body of Christ here, we have to be very careful to know that there will be people who come in here that want to divide the body. Very careful. Right? They, they want to bring in ideas so they get followers after themselves to cause divisions and rifts in the church. Watch out for them. That's not from God. Third thing we understand is that not only we all come in unity, but we also overcome with good doctrine. Just because we're unified doesn't mean we throw away truth. This is important for us, right? Just as I am not supposed to reject anyone whom God has accepted, it's not my job or my right to accept those who have not, God has not accepted, who, who stand outside of his kingdom. Doctrine matters. If they don't have the essentials, they're saying, you're saved by God's grace through whatever you want to do through your own works, I can't say you're my brother, sister, in Christ. I can say I love you, but there's good news for you. You don't have to work so hard, right? There are things there that doctrine does matter. It doesn't mean we're evil or we're mean to those that are outside, but we, we can't unify with bad doctrine. It matters. Look what Paul says in verse 30, where he warns against these wolves who come into the church who try to destroy it. He says, even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw disciples away from them. Verse 31, so be on your guard. Remember that for these three years, I never stopped warning you day and night, even with tears. What we believe matters. It really does. So we have to be wary of bad doctrine, doctrine that teaches that Jesus isn't the only way, doctrine that contradicts the word of God, that says you can't trust the standard. We have to reject it. And here's the thing is, this is why we have elders. Right? Paul was talking to the elders, saying, guard the church. You know why that is? Bad doctrine is like heroin. Right? It's it, it, it's designed to feel good. Right? It goes in, and it's not like the person who has heroin injected in their system is a bad person because it feels good. Right? It feels good because it was designed to. But it will destroy them. The thing is, the church has elders to dealers of bad doctrine. Uh, there are books and magazines and, and radio things and online pastors that, that go in there and they teach bad doctrine, bad stuff that will tell you you don't have to trust the word, you don't, what it says it doesn't mean, all those kinds of things. And, and it tickles our ears and it feels good and it makes you feel like, hey, I know something special. And if we just buy into that, it destroys our lives. We can become bad doctrine heresy addicts. And that's why God gave us elders. That to stand guard and to say, whoa, 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 whoa. 
That may feel good, but it's not good. That's why we have them. That's why there's not just one elder, by the way. That's why there's a group of them, because we need help. And the job is to protect good doctrine so the church can be healthy. And understand this, that doctrine then can't be, cannot be derived from things that make us just feel good, things like culture or popularity. Do you know there are things in the Bible that are just culturally not PC? There are things that the Word of God says that are just not popular? But it doesn't change. It's the same truth from the very beginning to now. There will be times that the things in this book are really popular, and there are places that things in this book are really popular, and there are times and places that the things in this book are considered so dangerous it's illegal. But the truths don't change. The doctrine doesn't change. We cannot allow it to change. And churches who walk away from doctrine are dividing themselves from the power of God. We overcome only when we stand on truth. Which means that we can't question this. When we go to it and we disagree with it, we say, huh, God, you got to help change me. Help me find how to stand on this truth in such a way that it's also love. Right? That's what we need to do. We need to be dedicated to it. Which means that, just like Paul says, you know that I never stop preaching things that would help you. Which is why, as your pastor, sometimes I preach things that are offensive. I know, because I get love notes. I poke you sometimes. It's not because I don't love you. It's because I do love you. And it's not because I think I have got great ideas, but because I believe that this is a great idea. It's the very mind of God. It has the power to transform us and to help us. It is His revelation. In your own life, if you try to live apart from the teachings of this, Jesus said you're like a person who builds his house on a foundation of sand. It'll look beautiful at first, but the storms of life will knock it down. But if you build your life on these truths, your life will be like a house that was built on a solid rock. Can't we appreciate that in Estes? We had a massive rainstorm here just a couple days ago. Our driveway was basically built upon sand, but this building is built upon a rock. We need to, so in your own life, Having a life that overcomes, a life of value and purpose is a life based upon the truths of Christ's teaching. In the same way, a church that overcomes, when we come together and we can agree that I'm not always right and you're not always right, but the word of God is always right. And if we can come together and say, how do we apply this? The church overcomes. It has for thousands of years. It will for thousands of years longer, however long it takes for the Lord to come back. I've covered a lot. How do we apply it? I think the first thing we need to do is examine our hearts for selfishness. Selfishness is what kills faith. Selfishness is what takes the Christian faith and makes it basically watered down, right? It, it misuses it. Can you imagine as a pastor, if I was here for my own, my own benefit, like because I thought, you guys make me feel good. That'd be horrible. I'd be a horrible pastor, right? I'd only serve you if you were, you know, nice to me. That would be awful, right? Who would be there in the times where you're feeling weak or hurting, it's the same for you. You've got to check our hearts. Do we only serve when it makes me feel good? Do we only serve when it's convenient? Do we only give when I feel like, well, it can serve me back? I think we need to check our own hearts for selfishness. I had to start doing this a couple weeks ago, and I, actually a few months ago when I really began this, to question the motives of my heart. And this is how I started doing it. And I invite you to try this. Is when you do something, you can say, what motivated my decision? Why did I do it? Why did I do that? As I'm surprised that sometimes I found that, yeah, God was really working me. I was doing things for the right reasons. And sometimes I was doing the right things for totally the wrong reason. Like totally the wrong reason. And that wasn't good at all. Let me give you an example. My wife's not here right now, but so I'll better share because she's watching right now on, on our face, face uh, what is it, FaceTube? I don't know, uh, Facebook. Uh, 
the morning, we, we make coffee, right? I make coffee. And I bring it down, and we start the day together. We have our coffee time. We talk and talk about the day and things like that. Then I get ready, and I go to work. And that's how the day begins. And every day, I'm the one that makes the coffee. And so one day, as I was preparing for this and all that, it was in my mind, I said, why do I make the coffee? Which is a good work, by the way, isn't it? Wouldn't you say, hey, that's a nice thing to do? Yeah, but I wasn't doing it the right way. Because I was finding that I was doing it, I was walking up the stairs, and I was all disgruntled. Why do I have to make the coffee? i got to clean the coffee pot every single day. Right? The wrong motive. And I said, why am I doing this? Well, because I want coffee right away, darn it. I don't want to wait for her to get up out of bed. Right? And I make good coffee. Dare I say better coffee. I was doing it for me. What a selfish, horrible thing to do. It wasn't I was doing the wrong thing. I didn't stop making coffee, but I had to change how I was doing it. And so I began every day as I wake up, I go all the way up. You know, God's grace is mercy over her and all that. And I'm making the coffee when I come back down. I thank God for her. I remind myself of all the things, the blessing that she is in my life, all the way back down. You know how that changed? Just that one little thing? I'm doing this now for her. It makes the morning totally different every single day. I think we have to start asking ourselves why we do what we do. The other day, Thomas was playing a video game, and he said a word I didn't want him to say, and I snapped at him, and he deserved it. But I didn't snap at him the right way. And I raised my voice, but I didn't explain why. He just got to lose his privilege of playing that game and got to go to his room. And then I was convicted. I said, why did I do that? Well, because I felt that he wasn't listening to my authority, but did I teach him? No. Did I do what was actually good for him? Not really. I was doing it for selfish. So I had to go back up to his room, sat on his bed with him, and I said, listen, you were wrong, but so was I. We're both going to learn from this. And I got to explain to him, I'll, you know what? I'm going to respect you. That's how we work. We're not going to raise my voice at you. You're not underneath me, but I'm not going to put up with these things, and here's why. And we talked it out, and he learned. And he still had his punishment, but he learned motivation. Examine your heart. Are you doing things only because it serves you? Change. Put to death those things, but you have to discover them first. So start asking. i tell you what a great way to start is having that memory verse. I consider my life worth nothing to me. That's a great way to start. It reminds me to put to death myself so I can live the better life. The second thing we want to do is want to protect the church from division, right? Best way to do that as a Christian is to not gossip. Most churches that split started with gossip. Gossip is talking about a third party when that third party's not around. Your problem with that third party. All it does is it creates people around you, make you feel good about yourself, and creates an enemy to that other person who can't even defend themselves and can't reconcile, can't fix the problem. And I'll tell you, gossip is... Is insidious, is dangerous, the scripture warns against it horribly because it is so devastating. And uh, every Christian is subject to it because we're humans and we like our own little kingdom. And I'll tell you something that happened to me a few years ago while I was, I was having an issue with another guy in the church because we're brothers and brothers fight, right? right? He wasn't my biological brother, he was my brother in the Lord, which is even closer. And, we were, and I wasn't happy with him, and instead of solving the issue, I was in the back, I was talking to one of my friends here at the church about this guy. And this little girl that's in our church came up to me and said, Pastor Aaron, you're gossiping. And oh, she was right. <laughs> Apologize to that girl and my friend. And then I had to go find this guy at the end of the service, not the moment, but I waited for the service to end. And I had to go to him and I'd be like, Man, I, was, I was gossiping about you. And I'm sorry. And he was already not in good terms with me, so it didn't go well. Right? 
But it didn't matter because I had to stop gossiping. You know what that did is it opened the door for us to begin to resolve the conflict. And it took a while. It took a good while, but we resolved the conflict. And then there was peace. And then there was unity. We have to be willing as Christians to die to ourselves enough to be able to resolve conflict in the, in the bonds of brotherly love. That's what we need to do. We also have to love more than just with our words. We can't say, hey, I love you. We have to show it by our actions. The scripture says, if you see somebody that's hurting and you don't help them, how dare you say you love them? Right? And it says this, how can you possibly say you love God, whom you've never seen, if you can't love his family you see every day? Right? Our actions have got to betray the true nature of our heart. If we love people, then let's actually show it. How do we do that? That's what that whole Say Yes ministry is about about living our lives in such a way, serving one another because we love God and we're showing them love too. Third thing we need to do is to embrace biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine. Not saying, what does culture have to say on any issue, but what does God have to say on the issue? That's what I'm going to live by. Not by saying what is popular, what do I agree with, but what does God say? Embrace that. Follow Jesus, not yourself. Because I'll tell you what, Jesus is not a follower of you. You want to be a disciple of his. I would say this too. Also pray for and trust your elders. Pray for us. I have to answer someday to God for the doctrine I teach you. You don't think that terrifies me? It really does. That's why I spend so much time in the word. Maybe that is selfish, but I'm going to want to stand before him someday and say, I got it wrong. So pray for us. We're fallible. You already know that I'm selfish inside and I'm not perfect and I sin, right? All of those things. you got to pray for us to have the wisdom and the right heart to love you and to guide you. Also, I say commit to church. You're not here to be served. I'm so tired of hearing people say, well, I'm going to go to church. I don't like going to the church. Sometimes I call people, I don't go to church because I didn't get anything out of it. It's like it's not for you. This is a worship service where we serve Jesus. And I'm sorry if I miss anybody to hear that in the wrong way. We're not here to serve you. Jesus already served you. He served us. You're not here to serve me. We're here to come together as a body of Christ and to serve the Lord worship. That's what we're doing. And in so doing, I serve you as well as the body of Christ. But I'm not here to be served. Jesus said, calls us to do the same thing. Being part of the church is important. You're here to worship him by showing love to him first and to one another. Today, we've covered a lot. How to live a life of purpose. How to have a church that overcomes. We do that with sacrifice. I invite you to it. Sacrifice is not fun, but it's powerful. It is so powerful. How about this? We overcome in unity. Isn't it great we're not alone? Come together. Be together. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and we win. Also, with good doctrine. Aren't you grateful we don't have to make this up? We have the opportunity to stand with it. Let's do that. Let's examine our hearts. Let's protect the unity of the church. Let's embrace good doctrine, and let's overcome as individuals and in Christ's body in this community. Let's do it together. Now, how do you do that? What are your next steps? You individually have something to do, and you can't do it all. So what's something that you can do this week? If you have your connection card, I invite you to take it out because there's some ideas, opportunities on the back of this to help you. Maybe the thing that you want to do this week, just your next step. It's not huge. It's not a giant leap. It's just a step. Maybe your next step is this. Maybe you're going to uh, memorize Acts 20, 24. That's a really helpful passage. 
Maybe begin by setting it to your heart and let it be a filter to your mind and your spirit. Or how about this? Maybe this week you say, my next step is I'm going to read Acts 20. Aaron preached over it. I'm going to read it for myself. It is a half a page. It is powerful stuff, though. Maybe that's what you do this week. Spend some time in God's Word. Or how about this? Maybe you spend time this week praying for the elders. Do you know what we're doing right now, the elders? We're fasting and praying. And we're, setting, we're asking God to show us what he'd like us to do these next year, the next five years. You would pray with us for that, that God would give us his vision, what he wants to do in this body, not us. I would be so grateful. The last thing you need to do is have Aaron in charge. You're not disciples of Aaron. You're disciples of Jesus. So maybe this week you say, you know, I'm going to specifically pray for the elders. Or maybe what you do is you start giving sacrificially. Right? It's a sign of worship. You give your time. That's, that's being here. You may say, you know what? Yes, I'm giving up my Sunday morning, but what a great way to start the week anyway, but I'm going to be here. Or maybe what you do is you say, I'm going to be giving my talents. I'm going to start serving regularly. That's what their Say Yes ministry is all about. We'll help you do that. Maybe you say, I'm going to give sacrificially financially, right, with my treasure. Say, God, it's you first. My trust is in you. But I'll say this, start sacrificing. Lay yourself down so you're not living a selfish life, a life of value. I've given you some opportunities, some things for you to do. Maybe there's something different that the Holy Spirit's helped you think of. Write that down. If you have a prayer request, here's your chance. Write it down. In a second, we're going to take our offering. And as we do, I invite you to take these connection cards. Drop them in the end. Let me bless you and the offering before we take it. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and your grace. Thank you for giving us this blessing of a time, this life, and this earth. Lord, help us as your children and as your congregation here, this, uh, here in Estes Park. Help us to make the most of it. Lord, we, we pray that you would allow us the privilege, Lord, of, uh, of choosing the right things to live for you, to overcome, Lord, in, in a way that, that uh, really is overcoming the selfishness, that overcomes the, the, the destruction that we bring in this life. Instead, Father, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in us and through us, just as is in heaven. Lord, we pray for the offerings that we're taking, that you would bless them, use them, multiply them, build your kingdom for your glory. We pray for the commitments we made, Lord, that they would be a, a sign of our commitment to you, that you would change us and the world through them. We pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.